So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, uh, that's page 1089 of your pew Bibles. And we want to read about the church in Sardis. Sardis Baptist Church in Asia Minor. I have no doubt that's what it said on the First Baptist Church of Sardis, Asia Minor. That's probably what it said. All right, with that, if you will stand with me out of reverence for, for God's holy word. The Apostle John writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, chapter 3, verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know at what hour I will come against you. You have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, as always, we ask you to open our, our, our hearts and our minds and our eyes and our ears, our mouth, our hands and our feet, uh, that we are convicted by this passage, for we should be, and that we do the things that we are asked to do, to remember and to repent, apply it to our lives. And Lord, may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you, what do you think is considered the most contentious presidential campaign election in our history, I suspect you would say it was 2020, 2016, 2012, 2008, 2000, right? You're just going to keep, keep going out. It's got to be one of them, right? Because things are crazy. When in fact, that historically, most historians agree that the most contentious presidential election is not a recent election. In fact, most of us weren't around then. It was in the year 1800. That, of course, was the election between John Adams, the sitting president and former vice president of George Washington, and the former secretary of state and ambassador to France, and the writer of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Thomas Jefferson. And historians usually do want to emphasize just how ugly that campaign really got. And it got ugly. They called each other names that were quite, quite nasty, although it was with, with such eloquence. You kind of think, if you're going to call me something bad, at least put it like that, right? It was very eloquent the way they offended each other. It's a wonder they didn't sue each other for libel and defamation, all that sort of stuff. But it got quite ugly in the press. Uh, uh, Jefferson had his... Uh, 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 people in the press and Adams had his people in the press and they just lobby one accusation after another against each other. Yet for the most part, it was Jefferson's to, to lose. Adams was not a very popular man in D.C., wasn't a popular president per se, although I think a lot that he did was, was quite good with the 2020 side of, of history. But it really came down to not between Jefferson and Adams, but between Thomas Jefferson and Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr was uh, someone that we, we do forget in history. He, he would eventually rise to become vice president under Thomas Jefferson. But there was a, a while there, it looked like Aaron Burr might beat Jefferson to the White House. It was neck to neck in Congress as they were trying to figure all this out. And one of the things that, 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 that would have helped either candidate is an endorsement from a 
former, uh, the former Secretary Treasurer, Alexander Hamilton. The problem with Hamilton is he didn't like either guy because they were of the other party. I'm glad we don't do partisan politics like that anymore. Yet many wanted to know who would Hamilton endorse for the presidency. Even though it's not part of his party, even though he has serious political disagreements with them, who would he choose? On the one hand was Thomas Jefferson, who the two of them and the Washington administration did not get along and did not agree on anything. Jefferson was a small government libertarian who really believed in states' rights. Hamilton, on the other hand, believed in a strong federal government, which is why he's involved with the federal bank and, and, and everything. But then there was Aaron Burr, a longtime friend of Hamilton's whose relationship had soured. Who would Hamilton choose? He ended up endorsing the man he disliked the most, Thomas Jefferson. And the reason he gave was quite simple. It had to do with character and conviction. He believed Jefferson had greater character, and he certainly believed Jefferson. Though he disagreed with almost everything Jefferson ever stood for politically, at least he knew where Jefferson stood. In the Broadway play, which I would recommend to you, of, 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 uh, it's on Disney Plus, why not, of Hamilton, I think they summarize it well. When, when Aaron Burr and, and Alexander Hamilton first meet, uh, Hamilton is, 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 a, is, is a loud sort of guy who, who thinks you should know what he thinks about something. Burr, on the other hand, was the opposite. So when they meet, Burr gives Hamilton some advice. And in the musical, he says to Hamilton, talk less, smile more, and don't let them know what you are against or what you are for. So what we have between Jefferson and Hamlet on the one end and Burr on the other is two approaches to politics. One is always say what you think. Even though people may disagree with you, they know at least where you stand. The other is play the role. Watch the polls. Where to use a golfing term, you take the grass and you throw it in the air to see which way the wind blows. Now, granted, in politics, it's usually the latter that dominates, right? I mean, all of us can get on the YouTube and we can find any politician you like or dislike. And 10 years ago, they said X on a subject. Now they say Y on the same subject that is polar opposite. Why? Because polls and elections and all that sort of stuff. Well, that sort of lack of conviction may work in politics. The problem is, is whenever we do the same within the church. What we have here is not a church with bad theology. What we have here isn't a church that is under threat from Caesar. In fact, that's really the problem. They have no conviction. They have no theology. They're not a threat at all to Caesar. They just want to be saved. Notice how this text begins here. We, we first of all meet the Redeemer, the Redeemer of Sardis. We, we, we can't really spend the time on verse 1 I would like to, but I'm sure you've noticed, it's now our fifth of seven letters, that, that they all begin this, the same, right? To the angel of the church of X. Here it is Sardis, right? They all start that way. And then we get an image of Christ borrowed from chapter 1 that is then applied to the specific challenging needs of that church. And so we see two things about Christ. First, the 
seven spirits, and secondly, the seven stars. Now, for the sake of time and, and, and to keep your head spinning, I don't want to spend a lot of time on these. I think the seven spirits represent the fullness of the Holy Spirit. So seven means fullness and wholeness. It isn't that Jesus has seven spirits. I don't even know what that would mean. But the idea of fullness of God, seven stars, well, we know from chapter one that these are the seven messengers of the seven churches. And remember from chapter one, he holds them in his right hand. He is sovereign over his church. But what we need to see here is that this is Christ pleading with his church to respond in repentance, to respond to his message. He is their redeemer. It's the big idea of Revelation. So let us quickly move from their redeemer to their reputation here in uh, verse in the rest of verse one, notice, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Now notice how it begins there. I know your works. And that is either a good thing or that is a bad thing. If, if, if you're, you're a teenager and, and mom and dad bring you in and say, son, daughter, I know what you've been doing. That either means you got straight A's and here's a quarter, or it means anything else other than straight A's and go to your room, right? You get this. Now, in the seven letters, almost all of them have a phrase like this, and it's almost always good. For example, in Ephesus, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, right? That's a good thing. He's praising them. In Smyrna, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich, slander of those who say they're Jews. Not he said, look, look, I, you've endured all these things. Or in Pergamum, uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. That's a good thing. That's a praiseworthy thing. Thyatira, we saw last week, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works seed the first. Now, remember with Thyatira, Jesus didn't have a lot of good things to say about them. But he did at least have this. I know your works. So thus far, Jesus is offering words of encouragement and understanding right from the beginning. Except with Sardis, I know your works. What he's saying here is, Sardis, I know what you did last summer. I know what you have been up to. I know what is going on. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That is right. Jesus describes the church of Sardis as full of zombies. They have the appearance of being alive, but in reality, they are dead. From the outside, everything looks normal. The parking lot is full on Sunday mornings. The budget is met. The bills are paid. Buildings are dedicated. And the pastor looks good on the TV, right? Everything seems good. Even on the inside, everything looks right. They're not even fighting during the business meeting. It's so good. Staff and their families get along. No one's posting gossipy nonsense on their social media page. No one has fallen asleep during a sermon for weeks. I mean, it's going great. People even seem to like the youth guy. I mean, even from the inside, things seem to be okay. But from the eyes of heaven, Jesus declares, you have the appearance of life, but you are actually dead. Now, Jesus uses the same language elsewhere in Scripture. When speaking to the Pharisees, he says in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but inside 
is full of dead men's bones. You look alive, you look beautiful, but you are dead. Jesus' point, I think, is quite clear. The church looks authentic. The church looks orthodox. They look vibrant and faithful, but they are dead. One of the things that happened during the Greek occupation of Palestine, of course, the Greeks come right before the Romans. They are there in between the Old and New Testament, is that one of their, their, their main guys that stirred a lot of trouble was a guy by the name of Antiochus. And one of the things he did was he relocated about 2,000 Jews out of Palestine into Asia Minor, particularly around Sardis, the city of Sardis and the areas around it, which meant that there was a higher population of Jews in Sardis than there was in these other cities we meet in these seven letters. In fact, archaeology has backed this up. We found a large synagogue, Jewish synagogue, dating to about the 3rd century AD, which is consistent with this notion that Sardis had a large uh, a Jewish population compared to other cities of Asia Minor. Now, this is really, that little detail is what makes this letter so strange. Because what we've seen thus far, what we will see, Lord willing, next week, is a constant reference to the Jews pestering these churches. Now, remember that to the Romans, the Jews and Christians were essentially the same thing. One came out of the other. They, 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 one was waiting for a Jewish Messiah. The other said the Jewish Messiah to come, but to them it was all the same. But to the Jews and Christians, they understood a clear difference. Christ has come. You either receive or you reject him. And your eternal judgment is, is the result of that decision. And so what we have is, is some animosity between the Christians and the Jews showing up in these churches of Asia Minor. For example, in Smyrna, it says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Right? That's... that's that's, that's pretty strong language, isn't it? Later, we'll see Lord willing next week with Philadelphia, not the one up north. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not. It's the same language. This is very, very strong language. Now, now we need to remember that, 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 that these churches are dealing with threats from both Jews and Gentiles, but we're, we're focusing here, here on the Jews to make a, make a point. Now think about it. Given the larger Jewish population in Smyrna or in Sardis, it seems strange in comparison to at least Philadelphia and Smyrna that this letter says nothing about opposition from the Jews. That makes sense, right? That, that, that if, if, if this small population of, of this political, ethnic, whatever identity is, is causing a stir, you would think that where there is a larger population... They would cause a bigger stir for the people of God. But that's not the case. And it is because, quite simply, the Christians of Sardis aren't a threat to the Jews. They're not a threat to the Gentiles. They're not a threat to Caesar. They're not a threat to anyone. They have the appearance of life. They're actually dead. In fact, we could do the same thing with Caesar and the Gentiles, couldn't we? We could go back over to Thyatira. We could look at Ephesus. We could look at Pergamon. We could look at all of them and say, why is it that Caesar hates you so much? And you come to Sardis, you're thinking, why is Caesar unaware of your existence? What, what, what is going on here? Now, this context, particularly in relating to the Jews, but, but broader than that, I think is demonstrated in verse 4. You still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That language of soiled garments is taken straight from the Old Testament. 
One becomes ceremonially unclean or soiled or filthy or dirty, whatever term you want to use, in a variety of ways, touching a dead body, bleeding, leprosy, whatever it might be. So he's saying here, he's borrowing that image, uh, that, that Jewish image, and applying to those who, who haven't soiled their garment. This he's saying that within the church, there's only a few who are spiritually still clean. The point is that the Sardis Christians are willing to go through the motions of faith, go through the motions of Christianity, but offer little threat to the lost world around them. While the rest of the churches are under threats from Caesar and governors and their neighbors, the Christians in Sardis sit quietly in their pews, making no enemies. That is to say, they are great actors. They are terrible missionaries. Perhaps the Sardis Christians compromised their faith to accommodate to their surroundings. See, we can be cool just like you are. Maybe they redefined the gospel to fit within the pantheon of gods around them. Maybe they stayed quiet in order to be respectable. Maybe they lived and feared and so censored the message. If the gospel we preach, if the faith we live by and the Jesus we worship fails to offend anyone, then it is not the gospel we preach. It is not the faith we live by, nor is it the real Jesus that we worship. Have you ever really thought about, you're reading through the gospel and you're thinking, look, if anyone was a good preacher, it's got to be like the son of God, the guy that invented language, right? I think we can understand this. And we would say, reading the gospel, Jesus is a good preacher, right? I mean, all of his sermons are under 10 minutes. I mean, it's just fantastic preaching you're getting in the gospels. But have you noticed something else? He was such a good preacher that almost every time he got to the invitation, they didn't come down front to repent in bitter tears and ashes, They came down front armed with rocks ready to kill the man. He was such a good preacher. They eventually managed to kill him. I think Martin Luther summarized it pretty pretty well. And I have this in my office. It's preached so that if people don't hate their sin, they will hate you. I think if we were honest, reading, at least it was for me this week, reading about the Sardis church, a bit like looking in the mirror. The average Southern Baptist church, let alone the average American congregation, can reach its budget, run its programs, put on a good show, but in reality, we're dead. And we know it's true. We won't say it in polite company, and we'll let the preacher get all the blame when he says it, but we know it's true. Can, can I give you three things that come out to mind when I read this? This is a really convicting passage for me this week. The first is American evangelicalism is too safe. Too safe. Most of the churches in Asia Minor were facing real forms of persecution. Let, let me give you a few examples here. In Ephesus, it says, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. Smyrna, do not fear what you're about to suffer. The devil's going to throw some of y'all in prison. Boy, if if we got that memo from Jesus, there wouldn't be a whole lot of people in church next Sunday. Pergamum, I know where you dwell. You remember where they dwell? Satan's throne, which may be related to the beasts we'll talk about tonight. You hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. You've got someone who was killed, who was a longtime member of your church. Yet the same is not true in Sardis. 
I think one of the reasons is because they buy into the lie that safety is a spiritual discipline. And one of my favorite stories is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, right? The, the, the first one he published of the Narnia series. It's, it's book two, but it's really the first one uh, that he wrote. And there's this great scene with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. That's them up there from, from the uh, movie, in case those of you who aren't cultured. Uh, but I love this scene, right? The Pevensey kids, three of them you know, are, are there because Edmund is, is the little Judas. But, but they're there, and, and the beavers are explaining to, to them all that's going on. And they're talking about Aslan and everything else. And Mr. Beaver says, you'll understand all of this when you see Aslan. But shall we see him, asked Susan? Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you, so you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he... Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the whole wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver or most of else just silly. Then he isn't safe, asked Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he is good. He's the king. You see, I think the world loathes us today mostly because we are louder about our politics than we are about our Savior. What we want is a safe faith. What we want is a co-pilot. What we want is spiritual bubble wrap so that no one will hurt our feelings. And if something happens, we could run into safety and everything could be okay. We'll never be challenged. We'll never be uh, corrected. We'll never need to be discipled. I just want to be safe. But that is not the gospel. How can we want safety when we come to the cross? See, dead Christianity is embarrassed about this sort of gospel. And too often we want safety rather than faithfulness. Not only that, I think American, Christian, American evangelicalism is too quiet. Now, now, don't get me wrong. It's not that we're unwilling to shout. The problem is we have a tendency to shout about the wrong things. Now, I was growing up, not only church I attended necessarily, but um, although every revival fit this um, stereotype, but... I'm well aware, growing up in a rural area with fire and brimstone preaching. There's nothing wrong with fire and brimstone preaching. But, but, but can, I, can I just be honest with one of the big problems I have with that approach? The assumption is that I'm going to stand on a soapbox and I'm going to tell you everything wrong with the world and never address what is wrong with the church. And we wonder why the world isn't hearing us. We'll scream about this sin and that sin, and the congregation eats it up. Tell them, preacher, right? They need to hear it. They're not here. Because we're not sharing anything with them during the week, are we? But confront the average conservative Christian 
on the prevailing sins within their own camp. And suddenly the congregation will get a little quieter and the preacher's tenure gets a little shorter, doesn't it? This doesn't just happen in our pulpits. It happens in our daily engagements. We'll share every meme that bashes the other guys. Some movement we think is going to ruin our country, but to stop and to pray for our neighbors and to boldly invite sinners to Christ, well, I ain't got time for that. The Sardis Christians dealt in a city decorated by temples to pagan gods, and they said nothing about it. All around us are pagan gods, and we are silent about it. It's not that we're unwilling to shout. We're unwilling to shout about the right things. Thirdly, before you throw your stones, let me at least get this point out. American evangelicalism is too stationary. For generations, every sibling, group of siblings, have, have played the same game. You know what this is, right? Let's say uh, mom and dad are getting up for the dinner table. That's what my mom and dad did to us. And they say, kids, one of y'all needs to do the dishes. What are the kids going to do? Not it, right? I mean, it's just, I said it first, like shotgun, right? You know, you know that game, right? Not it. Uh, 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 you're last, right? You're going to do the dishes. You're going to vacuum. You're, you're, you're going to have to listen to Paul Paul tell stories. Whatever it might be, right? I'm not it. I'm not it. And when it comes to sharing our faith, we play the same game. When it comes to living out the joy of the gospel, we do the same thing. What does it say about us, East Frankfurt, that thousands of Franklin Countyans drive by this church on a daily basis? Right here on Versailles Road, prime real estate we got right here. And if you were to go up to those same people who drive by here at least twice a day, that's if they don't take lunch. And you say, you know, I'm a member of East Frankfurt Baptist Church. You know what they're going to ask you? Where's that at? Now, we've joked about this, at least since, since I've been here. But it should embarrass us a little bit, shouldn't it? And chances are, the year 2021 will go by and you and I will, are unlikely to share our faith with anyone this year. And then we'll loathe the continuing decline of Christianity in America. Thinking, I don't know what has caused this. Every year at every Baptist convention, statewide, national-wide, whatever, the same themes are given. And there's usually some slogan and whatnot, and it's going to be emphasis between each service and each speech and all that sort of stuff. And those, those slogans and messages will be about supporting missions, and it's all about Jesus, and it's all about the gospel. And those things are awesome. Those are good. It's one of the things I love about being a Great Commission Baptist. But let's ask ourselves, we will talk a lot about missions We'll talk a lot about those missionaries. We'll sing much about Jesus. We'll carry on about the gospel. But you and I, we always think that's someone else's job, don't we? When I read about Sardis, I read us. I've got to move on because you're going to get out here late anyways. It's okay. Methods are already at Cracker Barrel. Finally, the repentance. What Jesus tells the Sardis Christians to do in response is the same thing he's told the other churches, right? You've been with us this far. You, you, you've seen the same thing virtually in every church. Here they are. Remain, remember, repent. Like they all start with R, so you know it has to be inspired, right? Remain, remember, repent. Verse 2, you see, you see there he, he talks about remaining. Wake up, strengthen what remains, for it is about to die. Atrophy in the hospital is not good. 
And if you lay down for weeks on weeks, your body loses the ability to function. So too, when the church is silent, when the church is lazy, when the church is spiritually atrophy, the church dies. It can't function anymore. Strengthen yourself. Strengthen with what remains. Remember, verse 3, then what you received and heard it. You have forgotten the gospel. You've forgotten the faith. You've forgotten Christianity itself and the glory of Christ. Repent, you will, there in the rest of verse 3. Keep it and repent. And refusal to do so, we see in the rest of the passage, is, is to result in their removal. I mean, how come the children of God do not take the cause of God as seriously as he does, right? Isn't that what you're reading here? How come the people of God don't take the cause of God as seriously as, as he does? But before he leaves, that we do get this encouraging word starting in verse 4, don't we? He sees there starting in verse 4 and going on into verse 5 that, that there is a remnant within the church in Sardis that hasn't surrendered to atropathy. They haven't surrendered to death. It is only, he says, there are a few names, but they remain pure, undiluted, and strong in their faith. He even says they are worthy. And what an encouragement that is. To see the sickness of the church, and our churches are sick. To see the lifeless work of American Christianity, and much of it is lifeless. To see the sinking spirituality of poor discipleship in American evangelicalism, and still keep fighting and still keep believing, and still keep fighting for the gospel. Because there's, there's, there's encouraging news I have for you today. No matter how angry you might be at, at the local church, no matter how frustrated you may be at American Christianity or Western Christianity, whatever categories you want, Jesus still believes in his church. There is no other plan B. There is no parachurch organization that's going to come save us. Jesus believes in his church because the church is his bride. It's you and me. So if you're here, may you be encouraged. Jesus knows your works. He knows about your faith. He knows about your prayers. The thing about the city of Sardis is it has a fascinating history. You should look it up and Google it yourself. It's a fascinating history. And the thing that's so fascinating about it is you, you couldn't conquer it. In fact, I, I may have, even have a picture of it. There it is. You see that the geography of the city set it up to where you didn't need a, a, you know, a wall all around the city. The geography itself made it pretty safe. And so, so the assumption was that if you're inside the city, no one's going to be able to penetrate through those walls. You couldn't surround the city with an army because it's around this sort of mountainous or really hilly area. And so you were very limited. You knew where the attack was going to come from. And so they could put all their resources and trade everything into fortifying the wall and keeping it safe and the strategy there. Yet though that is true, that it was an impenetrable city, it was conquered over and over and over again. Is it because the armies on the outside had technology that the army on the inside didn't have? It wasn't because they were creative or smart or more powerful. The reason Sardis fell is because of Sardis. Can I give you my favorite story in that regard? There was a man guarding the wall. And there he was at the top of that wall. And I believe it was the Persians who were outside the wall ready to attack. 
and he dropped his helmet. Just a simple act. Dropped his helmet, landed all the way down at, 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 at the bottom of the wall, and he thought, well, now what am I going to do? You can't go to war without a helmet. So, he got down, went down a secret stairway that no one else knew about, certainly not the Persians. Came out, got his helmet, and went right back up that stairway, came back to where he started. Did you see what he just did? He told the enemy the easiest way to get in. He became the Trojan horse. You see, the greatest weakness to the city of Sardis was the city of Sardis. The thing that will destroy the church is an unrepentant, undiscipled, unfocused members who forget what the gospel is. Let those who have ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. For it is Christ who has the seven spirits of God and the seven messengers in the churches in his hand. Let's pray.